Welcome back to Running Waters Podcast, where we're taking the gospel and teachings of Christ to the world. Today is Tuesday, December 28, 2021, and I am your host, Kevin Rumlinger. Today we're going to begin another story from the Hearts of Fire book, co-authored by The Voice of the Martyrs. The name of the story for this time is Aida, A Voice for the Voiceless. Let's begin. Russia. July 1968. She didn't want a lawyer. Ida didn't need a mouthpiece, especially not one who was assigned by the Soviet government. She wanted to speak for herself, to lay out her case before the judge. Sitting at the defense table in the wood-paneled Soviet courtroom, she stared above him into the stern portrait face of Lenin, the father of the system now holding her captive. The persecutor was against the idea. He didn't want to, the defendant speaking for herself. It meant giving her too much freedom. He pointed out that the defendant had spent time in a mental institution. How was she capable of conducting a criminal defense? The judge finally sided with Aida, and her defense lawyer left the courtroom, leaving Aida responsible for her own case and her punishment. It wasn't Aida's first time in a courtroom, or her first time being indicted for practicing her Christian faith. If the judge found her guilty and sent her to a labor camp, it wouldn't be her first time there either. No, all these things she had endured before. What was different this time was that she would not have a passive government-approved defense. This would be the first time she could speak for herself, clearly articulating her case on behalf of people of faith in her homeland. There were many charges, and the judge read each one with a loud accusatory voice that could freeze the blood. Ida was accused of living in Leningrad without the proper residency permit. Her permit had been rescinded. She was also charged with being a member of an unregistered church group and with distributing illegally printed Christian materials. At the heart of the most significant charges against her was a single word, slander. Ida, the prosecution contended, had collected and distributed false information reporting how Christians had been arrested, tried, and imprisoned in the Soviet Union. More dastardly in the government's eyes was the charge that she had passed on the information to foreigners, allowing information damning to the Soviet Union to reach other countries. Just as the prosecution would focus on a single word, so would Ida's defense. Hers would rest on the word truth. If the information she had passed on was true, she reasoned, it could not have been slanderous, and she planned to show the court that the information was most assuredly true. As the list of charges was read, Ida learned for the first time how thorough the police surveillance of her had been. They knew about Miss Jusmar, the pretty Swede who had come into the country to receive Ida's information. They knew when and where the two had met. They had confiscated Miss Jusmar's notebook which contained references to the meeting with Ida. The judge even listed each item of publication that Ida had passed to Miss Jismar, a tone of sarcastic disdain creeping into his voice. Jismar tried to take the literature she had received out of the country, the judge intoned, but during the customs inspection, the above-mentioned literature was discovered and promptly confiscated. He looked up from the indictment to glare at the defendant, a hint of triumphant smile on his face. They knew about David, another foreign Christian friend, and a copy of a Christian magazine, Herald of Salvation, Ida had sent them. 
They knew she had gone to another area to meet with her sister, to whom she had given magazines that were later passed on to Christians in the other underground church. The police seemed to know everyone she had met with and every piece of paper she had given out. Aida calmly wondered what other information they had intercepted, and as a result, which Christian prisoners were still unknown because her messages had been intercepted before reaching outside eyes. Again and again, as he read, a phrase rolled off the judge's tongue. According to the indictment, Ada had distributed deliberately false statements, slandering the Soviet state in social order. Ada sat quiet and alone at the defense table, uncomfortable in the hard wooden chair. She thought she might feel nervous or unsettled. Instead, she felt a quiet confidence, a sense of Christ's presence in the room. Jesus told his followers not to worry about what they would say when facing rulers or authorities, and she was not worried. When police questioned her, the judge said, continuing to read the indictment, she had not admitted her guilt, although she had admitted to sending and giving away Christian materials. Copies of many of the documents she had sent out were found in her apartment, police said, clearly tying her to the case. She told the police the materials did not contain slander, but merely accurately reflect the situations of the church in our country. Finally, the judge finished reading the indictment. Looking sternly at Aida, he said, Defendant, do you understand the charges against you? She looked back at him, confidently staring into his dark eyes. Yes. Do you plead guilty? No. Her face was calm and firm. The judge looked down at his notes, then announced that the trial would begin immediately. The first witness, he declared, would be Aida herself. When she began following Jesus Christ at the age of 21, Aida had no idea that the path he would take her on would lead to a courtroom. She was born into a Christian family and had known from an early age who Jesus was, but her family was racked by grief when in 1942 her father was arrested for refusing military service. He had been promised a certificate exempting him from the military duty, but the certificate never came. Instead, he was executed, leaving two-year-old Aida without even memories of him. Her mother was left to raise the family alone in a small Siberian community, and she did so through hard work and prayer. She read to the children regularly from the scriptures, and in spite of the risk of arrest and persecution, she took the children to gatherings of Christians who met secretly in each other's homes. Sometimes her uncle would remain outside the meeting to watch for any signs that police or soldiers were on their way. Aida remembers clearly the Sunday the police raided a meeting at their home. When they left, they took her uncle and two other Christian men in handcuffs and filed criminal charges against them. Sadly, when Aida was 11, her mother died. One of the clearest memories Aida had of her mother was how she worried that her children might grow up and leave their faith in Christ. But despite her mother's efforts, Aida did leave her faith. It was not so much a deliberate backturning as a simple drifting away, a loss of interest. Aida was being raised by an older sister, and in moving around, the family stopped going to church meetings. In school, they were taught that there is no God, and slowly even the mention of Him disappeared from their home. At age 19, Aida moved to Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. Her brother Victor, five years her senior, had finished his naval service and settled there, and Aida moved there to be near him. 
One day, the subject of religion came up in their conversation. Ida said, I do not know whether there is a God or there isn't. She was surprised by the intensity of her brother's reply. What has come over you, he demanded. I have never even doubted it. I know there is a God. Ida wished she could share her brother's certainty, but she needed proof. Shortly after that conversation, her brother Ida walked by an antique bookstore, and she remembered hearing someone mention that the store sometimes sold Bibles. Almost on a whim, she went in and asked for one. The clerk told her Bibles were very rare and that the store didn't have any. Ida turned to leave when another shopper followed her outside and offered her offered to sell her a New Testament for 15 rubles. It was almost all the money she had, but she gave it to the man in return for the old book. Ida's brother was thrilled with her purchase, especially because it came at the time he needed it most. He had been diagnosed with cancer, and his doctors told him it would be fatal. Victor asked Ida to go to the prayer house to let his friends there know of his condition. Ida did as he requested, and the friends came regularly to visit and encourage Victor. She watched as her brother's spirit became increasingly alive as the disease dragged his body toward death. She was amazed to see his faith in Christ go stronger as his body grew weaker. She longed to have the faith and certainty her brother had. He approached death not with worry or fear, but with a deep certainty of his eternal home. Four months after the diagnosis, Victor died. Standing at his bedside as his earthly life ran out, Ida sensed that his desire was for her to know he was not saying goodbye, but see you later. Ida wanted that same confidence, that same certainty. Victor's life, as well as his death, had answered many of her questions. She discussed the rest of them with some of Victor's friends from the prayer house. Finally, her decision became clear. She would follow Christ in faith. It was a decision that would prove very costly for the young woman, but one she would never regret. Do you wish to give the court an explanation concerning the charges against you, the judge asked? Yes, I do, Ida replied, knowing the judge himself would do the initial questioning. For this trial, he would serve as her accuser, judge, and jury. I admit the facts about distributing literature as mentioned in the indictment and above the recipients as mentioned. She had missed the facts. This case is going to be even faster than I hoped. She should have kept a lawyer, the prosecutor, prosecutor must have thought to himself. At the judge's urging, I had to recount each of the people she had given materials to as outlined in the indictment. She quibbled over the indictment, calling one item a journal when in fact it was no more than two or three pages in length, but she admitted to giving the items away and even to giving them to foreigners. Everything else in the indictment is correct, the judge asked when she had finished. Yes, she replied. All the facts about my distributing the literature are correct, but this literature does not contain deliberately false statements slandering the Soviet state and social order. That is, it does not constitute a crime under Article 190-1, and the distribution of the literature in itself is not a crime, therefore I plead not guilty. Rather than tackle her assertion head-on, the judge asked about the Swede, Ms. Jismar, to whom Ida had given the materials, including transcripts of two Christian trials in Soviet courts. 
I had refused to say where she'd met Miss Jismar, calling that a private matter. Listening to Ida present her case, the persecutor perked up, wondering if perhaps the young Christian would put up more of a fight than he'd given her credit for. Grudgingly, Ida provided details. She and Miss Jismar had a mutual friend in Sweden, and the friend had arranged their meeting. Miss Jismar had brought 50 New Testaments, which Ida had planned to pass on to members of the underground church until the police confiscated them. In exchange, Ida gave Miss Jismar the literature, including some letters and the trial transcripts, for her to take back to her employer, the Slavic Mission. From there, it became, from there, it would be printed and distributed around the world. Why did you give Miss Jismar copies of Herald of Salvation and Fraternal Leaflet, as well as transcripts of trials in Moscow and Razan, and letters of Korov and Mikovitsky? The judge asked harshly so that she could read them and learn about the life of our church, Ida responded matter-of-factly. Herald of Salvation is my favorite journal, and Fraternal Leaflet speaks about the life of our church. Trials have become so much a part of our church life that to know about the churches in Russia, you must know about the trials. Indeed, for those who chose to follow Christ completely, trials were an accepted part of life in the Soviet Union. Arrests, beatings, and imprisonments were part of the cost of following Christ here, and the underground church magazines accepted and publicized that fact. The judge could not believe Ida would trust a woman she had only just met with such a secret and important information. With believers, friendships develop more simply, Ida tried to explain. I can go to a strange town, meet believers I didn't know before, and after a few minutes, we can become close friends. Believers are one big family and we are interested in everything about each other. The prosecutor began to intersperse his questions with the judges, asking Ida about all the foreign addresses in her address book. He wanted to know if she wrote to all of them. Some of them, Ida answered. Then a little tartly, she added, I don't know of any law forbidding Soviet citizens from corresponding with friends abroad. Some believers who had come to observe the trial hid their smile as the prosecutor looked up sharply at Ida's remark. Then he began to read each name in her address book. Ida hadn't started out to be a correspondent working on the front lines of the Soviet church. When she put her trust in Christ, she was a pretty young woman of 21, full of excitement about her new best friend and wanting to tell everyone she met about him. Her decision came as a revival was breaking forth in the Baptist church in the Soviet Union. For a while, faith was growing weak, she would later say, and suddenly there came an awakening. What I saw was quite miraculous. I saw the dead, the spiritually dead, rising again, and the weak proved capable of great feats. I came to know the greatness of humility and patience, the greatness of the church's struggle. This revival quickened my spirit too, and from that time onward, I have not been able to remain uninvolved. Her new friends from Victor's Prayer House encouraged her to witness. She had watched as they printed cards with gospel texts and messages urging readers to repent and believe the good news. They placed the cards in mailboxes, which caused quite a stir in Leningrad, even meriting coverage in a local newspaper. From the first days of her Christian walk, Ida possessed a special boldness and zeal for sharing her faith with others. Only months after becoming a Christian, Ida devised a special way to be to welcome in the first day of 1962. 
she purchased a supply of postcards showing a Claude Lorraine painting of the sunrise over a harbor. For days she worked during every spare moment, spare moment, hand lettering a simple message on each one. Happy New Year, 1962. A New Year's wish. Our years flies past, one after the other unnoticed. Grief and sadness disappear. They are carried away by life. This world, the earth, is so transient. Everything in it comes to an end. Life is important. Don't be happy-go-lucky. What answer will you give your Creator? What awaits you, my friend, beyond the grave? Answer this question while light remains. Perhaps tomorrow, before God, you will appear to give an answer for everything. Think deeply about this, for you are not on this earth to eternity. Perhaps tomorrow you will break forever your links with this world. Seek God while He is to be found. The postcard poems concluded with a simple call, the same one she had seen earlier on the cards printed by her friends, Repent and Believe the Good News. After she filled out, of the, filled out all the cards, I had bundled up against the icy air and went outside. In the large square in front of the Museum of History of Religion and Atheism, the dark-haired young woman began to hand out the cards. She worked quickly through the stacks, handing them to passerby as she shared New Year's greetings. The cards were almost all gone when a strong hand grabbed her arm. What is this? An angry looking man demanded, waving the card in her face. A New Year's card, she answered, trying to pull away. She seemed very small next to the glowering man as she tensed as his grip grew tighter. He looked around and began calling for police officers standing on the corner. We don't need this here, he told her through clenched teeth. He did not let go of her until the policeman grabbed her other arm and began leading her to his car. It was Aida's first visit to the local police station. She was held for several hours and then released, but not until the police had opened a file on her and written down all the information about her postcard evangelism. Ida sat calmly, answering their questions, silently amazed at the confidence she felt. God was with her, she knew. She need not fear the authorities. She wondered if anyone had told the officer of Christ's love for him. The police reported the incident to both her employer and the dormitory where she lived. Her first brush with the legal system came that April, when a so-called comrades court heard the evidence against her. Ida sat on a bench in front of the three comrades who would rule on her fate. Accusers, local people from the community, were brought in to speak against her. One old man trembled with apparent rage as he screamed, I don't want to breathe the same air! I don't want to walk the same earth as her! Other witnesses claimed that Victor had died because the Baptist wouldn't allow him to seek medical care. A strange thing to say, thought Ida, since Victor had died in a hospital. Her accuser's statement surprised Ida in other ways, too. Weren't the charges against her for giving away a Christian card? What did that have to do with her brother? Ida tried to speak up and defend herself, and even Victor's widow tried to speak up, but the courtroom crowd angrily shouted them down. By the end of the trial, the onlookers were demanding that Ida's case be sent on to a court of higher jurisdiction where stronger punishment could be levied. To the people's court! To the people's court! they chanted. Ida wondered how a few civil postcards had engendered such hatred 
among this throng. The three comrades court officials rescinded Aida's Leningrad residency permit and forced her out of her job. After the witness testimony, the crowd of onlookers didn't think the sentence was nearly severe enough. They stood, stomping their feet and screaming at the petite girl standing in front of them, demanding a stiffer penalty. For her own safety, Ida had to be escorted by guards out of the back door of the building. The court's decision was not carried out for many months, giving police more time to watch and gather evidence against the young Christian. Not evidence of criminal activity, but evidence of her Christian work. Ida continued to live in Leningrad, finding work where she could. Her life had become more difficult, but those earthly hardships were just a taste of what was to come. Now in her current trial, the questioning continued. The judge and the prosecutor badgered Aida about every foreign contract, every piece of information that had ever changed hands. Next, they delved into the Christian publications Aida had distributed. The judge took one of the magazines from among the evidence pile and slowly turned the pages looking for paragraphs he had previously marked. Finding what he thought were the most incriminating sections, he began to read aloud, line by line. At the end of each sentence, he glared at Aida, challenging her to explain or verify the statements. The judge asked about different Christian denominations, pointing out that some denominations were meeting without facing persecution. I don't know about the persecution of believers of other denominations, Aida replied wearily. We write only about the persecutions of believers of the Evangelical Christian and Baptist Church. The prosecutor claimed that anyone outside the country who read the literature would think that all Christians in the Soviet Union faced persecution. He picked up where the judge had left off reading the magazines and badgering Ada over any sentence he found objectionable. He pointed out claims in one magazine that Christian children faced persecution in the Soviet Union school system. The schools, he suggested, were merely trying to undo damage done by zealot parents who poisoned their children with stupid superstitions. The law forbids the imposition of belief on those underage, he said, looking up to make sure the judge was following closely, but the law does not forbid the imposition of atheism, Ida shot back. Atheism isn't a religion. A child grows up and then he must himself decide his attitude toward belief. Atheism isn't imposed. Then what does one tell a child, Ida asked, looking from the prosecutor to the judge, that one is forbidden by law to say that God exists, but one is allowed to say that there is no God? No one spoke, and the judge changed the subject, knowing he had no answer. He demanded that the defendant not digress from the main point. The prosecutor continued, reading more comments from another magazine. Do you know that a religious community must be registered? He asked the defendant. Yes, Ida also knew that by registering, a church put itself under the control of the communist government, a government that denied the very existence of the God the church served. Your community did not register, therefore you are prevented from holding meetings. But not because there is a persecution of believers in our country, he said, like an impatient teacher lecturing a kindergarten child. Our community requested registration, Ida replied calmly. We put in an application, but we were refused. We were, you were refused because you refused to observe the law. Which laws do we not observe, she asked. 
You're demanding the creation of Sunday schools, and you want to organize religious activities for underage children. I don't remember that our community demanded a Sunday school I had encountered, and by law, parents can bring up their children as they wish. No, they can't, the prosecutor snapped. It is forbidden by law to involve children underage in religious societies, but you refuse to reckon with our laws. According to the Constitution, we have freedom of religious beliefs. The term implies a confession of faith, Ida answered. It means that it's possible to tell everyone about God. That is, to profess one's belief freely. Isn't that so? Here, Ida was presenting the core of her case. The Soviet Constitution said people are free to believe as they choose and to practice those beliefs. Yet, Soviet leaders feared Christians' beliefs. They wanted all confidence and dependence to be placed in the Communist Party. Wiping out religious belief, they reasoned, would lead people to believe more passionately in the party. Yet again, the judge had no answer for Ada's question. So once more he changed the subject, saying that if the material in all the literature was true, why was Ada so secretive about handing it out? Because those who persecute don't like it when the fact that they're persecuting becomes known, Ida answered, sounding more and more like a trained lawyer and less and less like a simple factory worker. I know that in literature I gave Miss Jismara that there were deliberate, no deliberately false statements. In the Herald of Salvation and in the Fraternal Leaflets, where the situation of believers is, is described, it's described as it really is. I agree with you that it's unattractive, but this is real life and it must be talked about. When I was handing over the literature to Miss Jismar, I knew that those materials would get me locked up. I understood that, but it doesn't change the truth of what the literature stated. The prosecutor scanned his notes and sat down. Finally, Ada's direct questioning was over, but the trial was not. Now the witnesses came. First, it was her neighbors, Anatoly and Alla Lavrenteva. Both judge and prosecutor badgered them with questions. Did she talk to you about her faith? Did she give you any literature? Did she have a TV or radio? Did she live according to her means? How did she dress? What did she cook? Neither Anatoly or Allah would say Ida was a criminal. Ida was on good terms with everyone, Anatoly said. You can only speak good of her. Another neighbor was called to testify and peppered with more questions about Ida's dress, demeanor, and employment. Finally, a fellow believer, Marja Akimovna Skrlova, was called to the witness chair. She had known Ida five years. The two had worshipped and prayed together, and when Ida came out of prison after a one-year sentence, Margie gave her a place to stay. Now Margie admitted to helping the defendant. You say that Ida was dismissed from her job because she was a believer, the judge asked? Why aren't you dismissed from your job? Surely you were. My turn hasn't come yet, Margie replied simply. Margie went on to admit that foreigners had come to the apartment she shared with Ida, but she did not know what, if anything, Ida had given them. When Ida stood to question her friend, she answered Marja about the persecutions of Christian believers. Marja recited the names of Christians who had been questioned or had had their houses searched by police and others who had been arrested. I know that believers were fine, Marja testified. Why was he fined? The prosecutor broke in Ida's questioning. Because he prayed. Where had he prayed? 
He led the prayers at Lucas Flats. There was a meeting there. That's right, the prosecutor said, almost shouting in triumph. A meeting was held in an unauthorized place. You have a prayer house. Go and pray there. Later, the prosecutor broke in again with Marja testified that she had been fined for attending a Christian meeting. Where was the meeting held, he demanded, in the woods. It's forbidden to hold a service in a public place. That's why you were fined. He nodded to the judge, a smug smile of satisfaction on his face. There was no one else in the woods. We were alone. We held our meeting and went away. But then some were picked up on the platforms where we were already going home, Marjorie recited. Another instance where Christians were harassed and obstructed by police. And then she was dismissed. The final witness in the case was Yekaterina Andreevna Boyka, Ada's friend and fellow believer. She identified Ada as her friend and testified that she was good and kind. Yekaterina told how police had come to her apartment asking for Ada. The officers had strongly implied that Ada was a spy and they urged Yekaterina and the other neighbors to let them know if Ida had was seen in the building. Yekaterina was clearly a witness hostile to the prosecution. In, at times, her answers were single syllables. At other times, she sat silently after being asked a question. What did you know about the visit of the Swedish tourist to Shripnikova, the prosecutor demanded. I knew nothing about it. I found out about it the next day. The police called on Ida at the flat while I was there. A policeman said that literature had been taken from a foreigner and that Ida had given it to them. The prosecutor asked her about her education, which had ended after the 10th grade. Why didn't you study any further? I wanted to go to medical school, Yakutrina replied, but, I'm, but in my character reference they wrote that I was a believer and a member of the schismatic Baptist. So I didn't enter medical school. I would have been expelled in any case. And you didn't even try? A hint of mockery strained the lawyer's voice. I knew from the examples of others that they would not let me study anyway. When Ida's turn came to question the witness, she looked at her friend. She began with general questions, then honed in on the Soviet state's treatment of Christian believers. Ida asked about specific believers who had been fined by police, and Yekaterina listed them, giving details about some of the cases. Why do you hold prayer meetings in the woods, the judge interrupted. You have a prayer house at Poklanea Hill. Why don't you go there? Your community isn't registered. You hold prayer meetings in an unauthorized place, and you disrupt public order. That's why you're fined. We applied for registration. Our meeting in the forest disturbed no one in Lerviki. The prosecutor asked if she believed herself to be a loyal citizen, obliged to observe the country's laws. I do observe the laws, Yagatrina insisted. You meet in the woods and in Luca's home, and your community isn't registered, the prosecutor retorted, so you do not observe the laws. The prayer meetings at Luca's were not against the law, she daringly quoted Lennon, who had called laws against beliefs shameful, not wishing to argue with one of communism's founders, the prosecutor abruptly dismissed the witness. Thank you for listening to the first half of the story of Aida. Come back next Wednesday, January 5th, 2022, 
for the second half of this amazing story of this amazing woman. I pray that you enjoyed this and it's a blessing to your soul. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thankful that Jesus Christ loved me so much that he became the propitiation for my sins and for the sins of all those who will call upon him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4 say, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You see, my friends, it was always, always, always the plan of God to give us His mercy and His grace through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. It was always, always, always the plan to give us eternal life, to deliver us from our sin and to redeem us unto Himself. Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28 say, As it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this to judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, but unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus Christ died for sin, but he did not die for his own sin. He died for the sins of all of us. He died for us so that we can call on him, so that we can know that we have hope beyond this life so that we can know that there is a better place waiting for us. The trials and the tribulations, the struggles of this world are as life is. They are a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. But faith in Jesus Christ and His gift of His life, His yoke upon us is eternal and will never be taken from us. Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Because we are sinners, we will die. We will shed these mortal bodies and we will leave this realm of existence and go into the realm that is true, to the real place, to our real home, which is more real than anything we will ever see here. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We will receive that eternal life if you trust in Jesus Christ for that eternal life. 2 Peter verse chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all should turn away from our ideas and what we think life should be and turn towards the, the pureness, the holiness, the righteousness that is Jesus Christ. To trust Him and to receive Him, accept Him into ourselves so that we may be sealed by His Holy Spirit, by that Comforter. Romans 10 verse 13 seals the deal. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't say whosoever uh, call, will call upon the name of the Lord might be saved. It doesn't say that you could be saved. It doesn't say if you do enough good works 
or you're holy and righteous enough within yourself, you, you, you'll be saved. It says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My friends, trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that He rose again on the third day. And then ask Him to forgive you for your sins and to give you His eternal life. This I pray for each and every one of us. God bless. I hope you enjoyed this episode from Running Waters Podcast. All episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Twitter, and my Running Waters Podcast Facebook. On my Facebook, you can click on the link for any of these platforms and it will take you directly to the one that you enjoy listening to the most. Please don't forget to follow and share. We want the teachings, book readings, and interviews to get out to the world so they can be encouraged as I have from learning the mind of Christ and sharing Him with all those who want to know Him. Thank you again for listening. Thank you again for following, and thank you again for sharing. God bless.